this does deserve spirited debate. And uh, the the straw manning of acting like everybody on that side, right? Is, it's ridiculous, and it misses the point. Which is why I wanted you both in here. everyone, I'm Lauren Green, and welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. And I tell you today, I think we need a lot of love, especially with this topic. I mean, I think we're, you know, we've heard a lot of truth coming from either side, but I think we need a lot more love right now. Very soon, the case of the Christian baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple will be argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. It will be one of the most highly anticipated religious liberty cases to come before the justices. It's Artisan Baker... Jack Phillips, he's arguing that he should not be forced to do something that violates his religious beliefs, which is make a, a cake for a gay wedding. Now, lower courts have found Phillips and his masterpiece cake shop guilty of discriminating against a same-sex couple who wanted the cake for their wedding. Now, the high court will decide using secular laws of the land. They are based on standards that are not biblically based per se, and I, and I don't even want to go that route, but I'm just going to say per se, but on what constitutes the First Amendment, freedom of religion. This is a conflict that was bound to come in a nation that is slowly losing its Christian foundations, and it moves towards a more secular religion as its standard, which means that what's moral and what's ethical is based on how we vote rather than any kind of objective standard. Now, if I claim that my religion prevents me from doing something because I see it as immoral, how is the government going to decide that I'm right if it's not using the same standard of immorality? All right. Well, but today we're not going to have a civic law discussion on the topic. I wanted to have a strictly biblical discussion because that's the standard Jack Phillips is using. So the question is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it something that it condemns or is it something that was never properly understood or that the Bible is just not up to date? I asked two pastors who hold different views on this issue to join me in studio to talk about this. And I told them that I would not have this conversation via phone or satellite. Because they needed to be in the same room, acknowledging each other's shared humanity first, despite having different views on how what the Bible has to say on the topic of homosexuality. And they have beat me to the to the punch because they have been discussing this and discussing this very gentlemanlike, and they I think they love each other. I think we're having a bro fest now. Absolutely. I think <laughs> I think so. Um, also, because I find that most of us are kind of preaching to our respective choirs. I really do believe this, which makes us run the risk of demonizing the other side, and I think it just has to stop. Now, Shane Eidelman, Pastor Shane Eidelman, is the lead uh, pastor of Westside Christian Fellowship in Lancaster, California. And I asked him to come here to New York City because I read a couple of articles online about how he was getting death threats over his preaching on traditional uh, marriage, on one man, one woman marriage. I thought it you know, really doesn't solve anything for him to come and talk about his side of the issue. It would be more beneficial to have another pastor who does not share his views on traditional marriage to join in the discussion. And so I asked Pastor Stan Mitchell, senior pastor of Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee, to join him. And uh, Stan, you also work with Faith in America. Is that right? Or you're part of right. Faith in Mar- America? And he's working to build – that's Mitchell Golds, uh, you know, because Mitchell – I've talked to Mitchell before. He's working to build understanding and empathy to LGBT youth who have often been marginalized and rejected – by the church community, and uh, one of the things that um, you talk about and, and Mitchell talks about is the, is the level of suicides of young um, uh, gay and lesbian um, youth um, because of this. Um, so uh, before we jump into the debate about homosexuality in the Bible, I want um, to, you to kind of give an opening statement on the case of the baker um, that's going before the Supreme Court um, in a little while. And so, Pastor um, Mitchell, I want you to – your take on this on this case – well, I'm not uh, the cake baker's congressman nor council person, and I'm also not his pastor. If I were his pastor, um, I would encourage him on moral grounds to bake that cake um, because I certainly um, believe that legally there is an obligation, but beyond the legal obligation, I think the moral obligation is to is to serve all of God's children and even those children with whom we disagree. Now, to what extent he should serve um, against the behest of his own conscience. Uh, you know, I, I respect his right 
And I even appreciate the fact that he's given up making cakes at all, a lucrative part of his business. 40%, I hear. Yeah. So this is a man of integrity, obviously, a good man who is willing to fall on his sword to some degree. He and I are diametrically opposed on the issue, and it always, Lauren, comes back to this central issue. We can talk secondary and tertiary issues all day long. It comes back to one thing for people of faith. Is this something with which God disapproves? Mm -hmm. Is this sin? Everything comes back to that issue. This is so much bigger for people like Shane and I than a constitutional right, uh, right. governmental issue. Because everything else is kind of just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, it really is. Okay, so and, and, and Shane, you basically, you believe that, that God has said this is a sin. Yeah, well, but first let me... And let's, and with, let's respond to, you know... With um, the baker, I don't think it's just an issue of baking a cake for them. What he's doing is actually his artistic expression of his faith in these cakes, painting whether they wanted two men or two women. He, it's not just here's a cake, you know, for your uh, for your wedding. He actually has to almost endorse what he doesn't agree with. So I definitely agree with his position because the Constitution under uh, the uh, protection of freedom of speech as well as religious expression uh, definitely would cover what he's doing. Uh, and I don't think he's got the wrong heart. I think he's got the convictions that won't allow him to go forward with that. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit um, upset that he has gotten death threats over this. I mean, the minute this is an exchange that happened in a um, in his bakery, the two gentlemen came in, wanted a, a wedding cake, and he said, I, "I'm sorry, I just don't do that." And now, I, you know, you can I'll, you can buy a cake that's already made, but I can't do it. You know, to my artistic talent for it. Um, and they went out. Apparently, you know, according to his people, it, it was an exchange that lasted a very short time. And then he began getting calls and death threats uh, that because he wouldn't do that. And I mean, and I have to ask you, um, Stan. I mean, it, this is not a good thing when people actually re- react like this to this issue. And but I've seen this a lot that there is this visceral, angry reaction that overflows into the level of. Death threats and that threats. type of sordid thing exists on both sides. You mentioned sh- the, the death threats that Shane has gotten. I've gotten them on the completely different side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, people who do that are not um, are not on anybody's side. They're on a completely wrong side. This is a sordid, sick mind. So uh, to go immediately, you know, there, I think both sides would uh, unequivocally condemn that. Yeah, obviously, yeah. we Shane and I both know that this has to not only be a public discourse; it's got to be a civil discourse. Right, right. Uh, your appeal in the beginning for charity and love. My grandmother used to say that sometimes it sounds stand like the Lord told you what to say and the devil told you how. And I think there's a lot of that going on right now. We're saying perhaps yeah. what we think is the right thing in incredibly the wrong way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If there's not love here, then what's the point? And, and it, it, well, that, Can I respond to that? Yes, I want you to respond. I think what, we're, what the listeners are going to have to realize is there's no middle ground. Uh, there's not a gray area. It's either black or white. And I, I think I have a hard time understanding and believing that true love doesn't point out when somebody's in error. I'm labeled a hate preacher. I'm labeled a hater. and But true love wants to help those individuals. And you mentioned the suicide rate. I've got the suicide rate among heroin users, uh, opiate users, alcoholics, all teenagers are struggling to find out who they are instead of pointing them to the one who has the answer. I think we're further confusing them mm-hmm. on this issue. But yet, th- so that's why they're people are like, well, can't we meet in the middle? There's either the Bible uh, right. says what it says or it doesn't. Um, and springboarding off what Stan said earlier that you know the spirit's moving differently now. New revelations. Uh, that's that's just a dangerous spot to go. I want to get into the scriptural things because um, you know, like Jack Phillips basing his values on what the scriptures say. And there are a handful of scriptures um, that talk directly about homosexuality, and then there are some that are sort of like on the tangential kind of plane. Um, Obviously, you know, the the Bible, not obviously, many people don't know this, the Bible is a narrative of redemption. So it's not, you can't always pick and choose verses to make your point if you don't get them in context. So that's a very important point. But I want to go through some of the verses um, that are there because I want to, as the moderator in this discussion, I just want to bring out what are the basic um, 
verses that get brought up when we're talking about the issue of homosexuality. And first one, of course, I'm trying to go in order, is, is, is Genesis in one. He talks about the image of God. They created male and female. He created them. And this is where it, God's directive to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, that is, and then also um, then we move on to Genesis and that this is the story of Lot. And this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the, one of the big, big, big issues um, that we talk about when we talk about um, uh, homosexuality. And I'm not going to go explain the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because it just takes too long mm-hmm. <laughs> for this kind of discussion. Um, I Case in point, this is Sodom and Gomorrah is the story of how guests were um, of lots were – uh, and on a cost, they said, "Come out, and so we can have sex with you, and various things." Right. And then God smote them with blindness and things like that. So the idea that um, you know homosexuality is is such a grave sin, He smote them with blindness. Um, so that's in um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, then we go to Leviticus, and Leviticus, Leviticus is the story of laws. Um, this is, uh, and this is where we get a lot of the talk about um, if man lies with a, um, a, a man. Uh, and a woman lies with a woman, um, you know, it is it is an abomination. Uh, Deuteronomy also talks about, refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you've got a series of Old Testament verses that really refer back to Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got Judges, uh, First Kings, and Second Kings. And then you move on into the first, uh, the New Testament. And one of the big verses is Romans 1, uh, and it says, For this cause God gave them up to into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use un, into that which is ga- against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. This is a huge one. First um, Corinthians, it, it lists homosexuality as, uh, as of, of many sins. Um, it talks about fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. Uh, and that sort of thing. Again, for Sim- First Timothy is the same thing: a list of sins, uh, whoremongers, um, something. You know, all these it, it lists uh, quite a few. Um, we also get to uh, the idea of what Jesus said, and I think this is one of the things that's kind of in a gray area because did Jesus speak specifically about homosexuality? And no, he did not. But he does give reference to the Old Testament Genesis and saying that God. Beginning of creation, God made them male and female, which is a um, repeat of Genesis, um, Genesis one. Um, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. Um, but then you also have verses like James says warns against judging. You've got um, you know you know in John you know casting the first stone. Um, you've got incredible verses talking about love and mercy mm-hmm. and and all that sort of stuff so now i've kind of gone through the i've given people a primer yep, on it. the uh on the what the bible says about homosexuality and i'm sure anybody listening to this can go google bible homosexuality and the verses and they can find all of those there but so i've gone through those but i want to kind of ask you guys um does the bible you know knowing those verses does the bible condemn homosexuality and, and, and Shane, I want to start with you. Well, you made a good point because if you just take Sodom and Gomorrah out of, out of context, you just read it. And, you know, you could, uh, you could read into it. It's called eisegesis, you know, reading something into a text that's probably not there. But if you look at the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, all the scriptures you just, you just mentioned, uh, the quick answer is absolutely. Uh, this is something God didn't create us this way. It's the result of our fallen nature. And we should be pointing people to the hope in Christ and letting them know we all struggle with something. That's why it's in there with homosexuality, drunkenness, covetous lying. See, we all got things that we're struggling with. So you could have a, my 10-year-old could read the Bible and come away with uh, the fact that, hey, you know, this is not right. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Th- this is the key. All of us will stand before God someday. And those on my side will say, Lord, we, your scripture was clear on this area. We tried to understand as best as we could. Uh, and and that's it will be judged on that. But the other side is going to have to explain how they tweaked and twisted and misrepresented all these scriptures that that are crystal clear. Not only that, there's no scriptural support for homosexuality. There's no scriptural support for uh, gay marriage. You just don't show it. There's just nothing supporting it. And I can answer the Jesus question in a minute if you want. Okay. On his talk. I want Stan to answer that now. Well, I'm on the other side, and I am one of those that will have to stand before God and gratefully... Jesus has already told us what he's going to say at the last day. He's going to say, I was hungry, 
thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, and sick, and you took care of me. And that's it. He's not going to parse our different theologies and nuances of doctrines. Um, so we already have the answer in the back of the book on what he's going to say in the end. And, and yet I would stand before God in clear conscience. I have been in Shane's position. I've been in both of these seats for many, many years. I believe the Bible said homosexuality was wrong. Okay. And I have now come to the conclusion, studying the same book, loving the same people, and in defense, this is not a, a group of homophobes on one side and, 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 and loving people on the other side. I loved gay people before as much as I love them now. Mm-hmm. I have changed my view. When I loved them and viewed Scripture as saying homosexuality is wrong, I was duty-bound to tell them that. Mm-hmm. And now I simply see it differently. Good minds and good hearts look at the same text, and we don't have to immediately go to the idea that somehow people are gerrymandering, tweaking with ill motives or the deception of Satan. Good minds and good hearts are looking. The text is clear, people say, and yet 39,000 denominations later, we are very clear, I think, in our practical reality that Scripture is more complex than we would like to admit. Well, we can blame the Protestant Reformation for that. Yes, we can. We can bring Martin Luther into it for that. Um, But I do want you to, you know, how do you look at a verse like Romans 1 and make that choice? Romans 1, I've read thousands of pages of scholarship on this. Um, There are really, really good minds that have delved into Romans 1 in a contextual level and recognize that this text isn't speaking about monogamous, same-sex adult relationships. This is speaking about a form of pederasty, child abuse that was pervasive, rampant in the Mediterranean rim. Now, Again, people are going to read this differently. They're going to read this text differently. When people say, well, the Bible's plain in Romans 1, I think about 1 Peter 2, Lauren. 1 Peter 2, the guy who preached on the day of Pentecost said, Slaves, be submissive to your masters, even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called by Christ. For Christ left us an example who, when reviled, reviled not again. This was the text that made King want to throw his Bible through the wall, he said. Until finally the Spirit spoke to him and said, read on, Martin. And he said he continued to read. For Christ left us an example who, when reviled, reviled not again, but entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. And all we like sheep were going astray, but had been brought home by the shepherd of our soul. And he said it hit him. My God, this text is no more a defense of slavery than it is a defense of the crucifixion of God. It's simply saying in a world where reprehensible things happen, God is so economic and utilitarian, he can redeem even the worst of things to a good end. Now, how does a good man with a doctorate and a good heart read a text one way his entire life that plainly says one thing and then reverses 180 degrees? That is not apostasy. And that's not God playing cat and mouse with us and revealing something that God has hitherto not wanted to reveal. Human consciousness grows and has the capacity to read things as we've never read them before. It's not the Scripture that's changing. Mm-hmm. It's us. Um, and Shane? Oh, not, I could unpack that one for Go me, ahead. But, go uh, ahead. We got the time. <laughs> well, when he, when he mentioned earlier that Jesus said, you know, when I was naked, when I was poor, you, you know, uh, you brought me water— why can't we do those things and still uphold to biblical truth? It, it always seems to separate it. Like I'm on the side that doesn't give to the water. My wife was spending a half, half hour with the homeless guy this morning in New York. I mean, we, we it's almost like they divide this, you know, uh, okay, either you love gay people or you're mean. But also with Romans 1, reading thousands of, of, of uh, articles from theologians or different things, those are good if you want to get context or information. But to read the context of Scripture, God made it crystal clear. People are suppressing the truth. They're exchanging a lie. So God gives them over their, to their debased and corrupted mind. And women start exchanging the natural use. What is the natural use? The way that God designed them to, for a man. They, they begin to exchange that for the lie. And they begin to worship and serve the creation. And they, that's where, that was where uh, homosexuality comes from. It's an exchange of our, our, how God designed us. We're pr- suppressing the truth and and this is the result of a depraved mind. And we don't say that mean and nasty. And I hear like Tony Campola said, fundamentals aren't fun and they're mental. I mean, that's mockery. I mean, the, these things that on the side that is supposedly this, this love and truth and tolerance, I don't see it on that side. 
We're simply loving those caught in the homosexual and gay lifestyle. And the reason they're committing suicide at such a young age is because they're confused. Instead of going and giving them the answer and hope in Christ, we're, we're further confusing them. So to me, the Bible's crystal clear. And it all depends on who you read. If they're reading Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, uh, and Tony Campolo to get their their interpretation of Romans 1, they should just read Romans 1. It's mm-hmm. clear. It's clear yeah. on what the context is. You know, I have a question for you, Stan. Like, if, if somebody really, truly, truly believes, and you've been there, you truly believe that the homosexual lifestyle is not what God's plan for them is, how do you, how do you approach them? How do you minister to them in a loving way? How do I minister to the? I mean, person? How, how could someone like Shane? I mean, I mean, how anybody? I mean, if you truly believe that loving them means correcting or changing this behavior or getting them out of this homosexual lifestyle, how do you do that? In I don't a think way? there's anything else Shane can do than lovingly do exactly what he's doing and try to lead them. If I believe someone is living an unhealthy lifestyle of sin, I do my best. Um, I, I, I just was dealing with a same-sex couple the other day, and one of them is in the process of infidelity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've spent hours with that person trying to get them out of the unhealth of infidelity. We all believe in sin. That's not the issue. We love people. That's not the issue. Uh, I am taken back um, because I I can defer to Shane's motive and say, I understand you're a good man. you got a good heart. I believe you're being honest and true to yourself. And yet his understanding of me is that somehow I'm debased and corrupted and with illicit motive tweaking Scripture and being led astray. I don't think he thinks you're corrupted. Do you think he's corrupted? No, not at all. I mean, I I think— Or or, or, um, unhealthy motives or something? No, well, that would be a false teacher, false prophet, and they come in with— with the intent of deceiving. I don't, I don't think that's Stan at all. We had a good talk. He's, he seems great. Somehow though, there's, uh, I think we're missing the bigger issue. You said that the spirit has revealed new truth, something to that degree, a new revelation. See, the spirit is the spirit of unity. If it doesn't, if it doesn't line up with God's word, then that's not the right spirit. Something else is in there. So the, the Holy Spirit's not going to lead us for 2000 church. I mean, you look at Justin Martyr, I, uh, uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Augustine, the church fathers. You look at the Reformation, even John Huss, Whitecliffe, uh, all, all, throughout church history. The, the scripture's been crystal clear, but now suddenly, last 50 or 60 years, we have even more recently with the group I just mentioned, uh, now they're, they're somehow coming up with a new definition, definition of Scripture because the Spirit's moving us in a different direction. To me, that, that's just very that's dangerous. That's not church history at all. Church history, we have a long history of correcting ourselves. You're a part of a Protestant Reformation, shame. a group of people who stood up. One of the, one of the 95 theses of Martin Luther was the perspicuity of Scripture, justification by grace through faith. Really important matters that King, or rather that Luther said, we've been getting wrong. It, it led to an incredible divide within the church. But, but, you know but why, at the same time right now, though, I think the Catholic Church has actually corrected that. I mean, they Vatican actually— Vatican II has gone it, a long it, way toward they, that. They've really done mm-hmm. that. And so that's not a part of the whole—you know, they don't, people don't have to get met, you know, upset about yeah. that anymore because that's yes, been corrected. Yes, because the Catholic Church has recognized they were wrong. And they did. Yes, they did. But the and, and, and you're not Catholic, so I don't want to bring in the Catholic Church here because I actually want to have this conversation with two Catholics sure. rather than two yeah. um, yeah. Protestants. Or a Protestant and a Catholic. Well, I think yeah. my point was— was to have showing that you won't have throughout church history where now uh, homosexuality, uh, where where they've agreed with that is an okay behavior. Yeah. And also all the denominations, all the, the church is correcting itself because it's going back to truth. What we see here is a, a deviation, a, a leaving from biblical truth. So throughout, in denominations, style of worship, women in leadership, gifts of the Holy Spirit, plurality of elders. I mean, that's why you have denominations. But these are huge. This is a central issue in the Christian faith where people are actually departing from a foundational moral code uh, that's been given. I don't believe that's what we're doing at all. But, you know, one of the things that we want to look at is the sort of biblical design, just a desi- from a design standpoint because of the complementarianess of male-female relationships. I mean, that has been the standard for, for I mean, I think all of humanity. I mean, you do – there is a history of homosexuality. Homosexuality did, did just pop up in the 20th century. I mean, that has been a whole history of it throughout the history of mankind or humankind or whatever, humanity. Um, so – it's never really ever taken the level that it's in the last 50 years. And and and, and I've seen it progress from being a, a primarily secular 
um, argument too. And it's now going into the church where the church never, never agreed on this. And now it's going, you can see this kind of change within the church. So why is it that all this time that no, and no culture, you know, indigenous culture actually kind of um, has, has said that this is the standard. This is a, an option. I think that's what I was referring to. Shane would refer to it as going in the wrong direction. I call it a growing human consciousness. I, I think we are built on the shoulders and the accumulating wisdom of our forebears. I think homosexuality has always been a percentage of our population, and our population hasn't known what to do with it. If you appeal to the Genesis 1 creation story, yes, there was a man and there was a woman. They were also told to copulate, to procreate, and have children. Adoption is not in the creation story. Adoption is not the natural order of things. There's nothing about adoption in uh, the Genesis creation story. And yet we don't think adoption is an immoral process. It may not be the natural process. It may not be the process that was indicated in Scripture. Mm-hmm. But the absence of it does not necessarily equate with immorality. And, you know, Shane, that brings up a good point, though, too, in terms of, you know, there are many couples who cannot have children. And so they must adopt. And so, you know, what is the answer to, you know, you know, marriages that are basically infertile? Well, in a nutshell, the exception, because they can't have children, procreate, it does not, that just confirms the rule to me. Uh, the, the design is male and female for obvious reasons. Uh, you can even look at secular psychology and they'll tell you that two men, two, home, uh, two women homes raising a child is not healthy. The child lacks many uh, sufficient needs they need from a father figure. And if you have two men, they they lack tremendous needs they need from a mother. So you not only see it from design, if you take it down to foster care, uh, to putting those kids into, a, or adoption, into a male-female ho- uh, a home that's healthy, that's the best thing for the, the kid. Also, I want to mention on the slavery thing, Martin Luther King Jr., quoting that, the Bible is not uh, okaying slavery. He's telling, uh, Paul's telling, here's your position, your character, and your attitude, what it should be under persecution. See, I don't think it's fair to use that scripture, say, see, he's, 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 he's okaying slavery here, and the Bible, okay, the Bible isn't saying that, saying be, be subject to your master, like we, be, be subject to your employees, treat them with dignity, courtesy. So he was dealing with a character issue, not confirming slavery. One of the things I have to do is say about slavery, though, is and it's difficult when we talk about scripture and slavery to look at it through the prism of our 21st century Absolutely. mind because our reference point is um, race-based ca- cattle, sh- slavery of, of African uh, Africans um, in the, you know, early in American history. So this is our reference point. In the ancient world, slavery was a little bit uh, quite different in that they didn't have things like, um, you know, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, well, it was a bond servant. It was a bond servant, but they didn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, they didn't have bankruptcy laws. And nobody, you couldn't, you know, you had to sell yourself if you got into money trouble. It's very common. And it, so it's, yeah. it's very common. And many times the slaves were actually even more educated than the slave owners. You just didn't have any money. And, you know, you've got a lot of artisans. You've got a lot of you know, intellectuals and, and, and people who really just ran out of money. So we, we can't always understand slavery through the prism of 21st century when we were looking at the slavery of, you know, that we fought a civil war over. Um, slave, so we understand, yes, slave owners used that verse, used those verses about slaves be, you know, you know, subject to your masters. They used it to justify their slavery. And that's a problem, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a problem, yeah. too. And, you know, and Stan, you're right. It's like we kind of learn more as we go along, but it also shows how human sin is such a driver for understanding Scripture and for, for understanding or trying to understand it in the way we want to understand it. And my point was if, if morality has been set in stone by God, absolute truth, that won't change. So what, what, when God says uh, that a man should not lay with a man as he does with a woman, that's an abomination— I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine trying to say, well, it doesn't mean that anymore. You know, now, now the Spirit's changing and doing new things. To me, Stan, it's just quite honestly, right. it would be scary. To take the time to go through the book of Leviticus well, call and identify all of the things that yeah. were called abominations and all of the things that were a part of the mitzvot, um, normally most scholars don't go to Leviticus. You have scriptures of real substance in Romans, 1 Corinthians. But you have Timothy. to put Leviticus in, in context because you can't just say it doesn't mean anything and it's and it's clearly there. It clearly had something to do with with Israel and the laws they were given, the Mosaic laws they were given. So you can't just discount it because Jesus did not say, Jesus said, 
I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Now, you can just say I've come to fulfill the messianic you know, law, but I, I don't think you can actually go there. There was so much he said so referencing the Old Testament that you can't just say Leviticus doesn't matter anymore. I mean, there are civil laws and there are um, you know, moral laws uh, from you get out of Leviticus, and many of the laws are changed now. The dietary laws are changed because, you know, Jesus says, um, you know, they're all, everything's clean now. You can eat anything. But then we're still debating about, you know, these moral laws. And and I've got to say that, you know, you, you, we got to talk about Leviticus. We, we do. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Mm-hmm. And immediately as he proposed that hermeneutic lens, that interpretive lens, he was castigated by the religious leaders. Because they said, you're defying Moses. He said, not only am I not defying Moses, I'm trying to defend Moses from your poor interpretation. There was a rabbinic midrash that had been happening on the oral and written Torah for hundreds of years. And when people say, Stan, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Absolutely. What I don't believe in is the authority of your interpretation or denomination's interpretation. And Jesus is calling us to a hermeneutic of humility when he said, you have heard this said. I mean, think about the interpretive process. You heard what someone said it said. There's a lot of room to miss there, Jesus said. And this is not to destroy. This is to enlighten and to fulfill and to get back to the heart of the law. Deuteronomy 24, if a man has a wife and finds any uncleanness in her, he can put her away. That's not unilateral. That, that's not mm-hmm. a woman can do this with a man. That's the Levitical law. It's only the man's right to do this with a woman. Even that word uncleanness by the time of Jesus had been lost in the development, the philology of that Jewish language. And they were arguing, does it mean for any cause or does it mean sexual immorality? Right. These are thick and complex texts with many contextual you know, elements to them. And I think that what I'm calling for is not some willy-nilly Um, loose-minded and loose-handed interpretation of Scripture. I just believe that the Holy Spirit continues to unfold Scripture. I love the text, and I believe it's a time-release capsule that releases its medicine as human consciousness has the capacity to hear it. Mm -hmm. And we're not hearing something it doesn't say. We're hearing it say something that we didn't have ears to hear it say before. All right. Um, Shane? Well, a couple of things. What Stan's talking about with Leviticus, unpacking Leviticus, is you made a good point, Lauren, is I would challenge anybody to find me one moral law, thou shalt not, that doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't apply now. What he's talking about is uh, don't eat shellfish. It's an abomination. So but what is it? I want you to refer to the what he said about Deuteronomy and about, you know, the Yeah, the we'll life. get to that okay, one. Just, right. Okay, sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. The Because uh, I can tell my son, don't put your feet up on the sink, and I can tell him, don't run in the front yard. They're both... Are both don't don't do something, but one has grave consequences. So he can say, and we know now. I mean, shellfish is not healthy. I don't want to get into that. But these, when God sets something in place, they are healthy. They are good for us. So to just throw out that with dietary laws uh, because those have changed doesn't make a lot of sense. But when Jesus said, uh, "You say or you have heard," he's not changing truth. For example, the first thing was, "You've heard it said." That, uh, you know, not murder, but if you murder in your mind, see, the sin starts here in your in your mind. If you start to there, that's where it starts. You've heard not to commit adultery, but if you lust after a woman in your heart, see, so he's going back to the heart issue. So he's not taking truth outlined in scripture and then and then redefining it into something else. He's just actually taking it to a more deeper level of the heart. So to me, contextually, for a lack of a better statement, that doesn't make any sense. How That's grasping for the wind. Uh, to try to tie in homosexuality with those types of statements. Okay. Um, one of the things in Scripture, because I'm still kind of on the issue of Scripture, um, one of the things that people have said um, that justify or sort of looking at the Bible and homosexual relationships and um, is looking at the relationships between David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi. These are both from the Old Testament. Um, and I, I'm really pointing this to you, Shane, because... Um, I think this is very interesting because I, I, I know a lot of people don't read the Bible anyway, so I, that's why I want to bring this out. Yeah. Um, David's relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan is the is the son of of Saul, King Saul, um, and Jonathan, in a sense, would be the king after Saul, except that you know God has you know now taken him out of the out of the lineup and now has placed David in 
in his in his in his stead. And David and Jonathan become very good and very close. And this is a scripture from First Samuel eighteen. After that, Jonathan became David's closest friend. He loved David as much as he loved himself. And from that day on, Saul kept David on his servant um, as his servant and didn't let him go back to his family. Now, so Jonathan made a pledge of mutual loyalty with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. And that's the that's that's kind of right. the, the crux of that. The Ruth and Naomi um, is uh, Ruth's uh, words to Naomi after both their husbands died. Ruth is, the, uh, is Naomi's daughter-in-law. And Ruth um, and Naomi says, go back to your people. Go back to your people because you're, you know, my son's dead and your husband's dead. I can't, you know, have more sons. And so Ruth says to Naomi, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you judge, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. These are very, very heartfelt relationships between two men and two women. Now, can you look at these um, can you look at these relationships and actually justify same-sex uh, marriage in, under those contexts and in that context? Well, let me just um, say something here. When I first read that people were trying to make that connection, I, of, of all the things that have shocked me, that's probably one of the things that has shocked me the most. To try to make that connection with homosexuality is eisegesis, you know, speaking something at, at, at its purest level. I mean, not only does it not say that, you wouldn't read it. You would never come up with that. But what, what this movement is trying to do is trying to, to, to turn, and that's why I mentioned the word ascription or twisting, not being uh, uh, belittling, Stan, but you, I see this movement twisting and, well, let's find this between Jonathan and David. I mean, we could go the Hebrew. There's three words for love in Hebrew. There's five for Greek. Uh, they don't deal anything with erotic sexual love. This is a, you have a good friend that you love as a brother. And, and Naomi love, I mean, to, to tie this in with homosexuality, um, is it is embarrassing from a hermeneutic and theological position? Um, and you know, Stan, do you see this in this, or do you base it on something else? Do you see this as a justification for for same sex marriage or homosexual relationships, or not? I think that's an incredible stretch to try to take okay. these relationships oh, good. Okay. and do that. I I, okay. I think that's um, probably a straw man. I don't find many of my academic friends or pastoral friends who would rely on that kind of a text. Um, we um, in both these cases, I should I should say, John uh, David actually does you know marry. He has several wives, sure. oh, um, but point. that's a legal issue in there. But he has several wives, and Ruth um, ends up um, marrying um, Boaz, and both of, of those descendants are in the genealogical line of Jesus, and that's why they're so important. That's why you're in there in the Bible. So go ahead, um, Stan. You know, I think about I think about text like First Timothy two. Um, I do not suffer a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man. Mm-hmm. Why, Paul? Because Adam was first formed, then Eve. Furthermore, Adam wasn't deceived, Eve was. First Peter 3 does always commentary. Always the woman. <laughs> always. First Peter 3 does commentary on that text and says that men should live respectfully with their wives and lovingly, knowing that they are the weaker vessel. Paul implied there that somehow there was a proclivity in the female structure and psyche that that Satan saw somehow, the serpent saw uh, an advantage to uh, direct his attention, his temptation toward her instead of the man. And on those grounds, the apostle Paul said, mm-hmm. I don't allow a woman to teach. And that's a very plain text that a lot of our brothers and sisters, Shane, would say, the Bible clearly says, right. and yet the church has been reforming on that issue for a long time. I don't know where you stand on women in ministry and leadership. But see, that's it's a good point because to give somebody permission uh, for the homosexual lifestyle with the Word of God and, ver- and getting the context of women in the role of, of leadership is is one's uh, a quite different view. In other words, if we're giving somebody permission for the homosexual lifestyle, to me that is... Uh, a lot different, and, and the Bible condemns that type of lifestyle. But your point is uh, teaching, the context is women in submission, a man, the man being the head, the, the leader of the home. And yeah, you do look at Scripture, and you, you kind of go back and forth on some things, but the truth doesn't change. The, the man was, God created man, Adam, Eve, the, the format, mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. function of the family, that the man should be the spiritual leader, uh, the man should be the covering and, and the protector. And so those things don't change, but how we look at, well, what does he mean like, be quiet in church, 
or not mm-hmm. preach. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's why you have a John MacArthur and a Jack Hayford, or you have, you know, different denominations that, that uh, but I don't, I'm not sure quite how to tie that into the homosexual I, issue. I actually have to interject here because um, I actually asked, um, I'm in the process of trying to ask uh, Dr. Serene Jones, who is the uh, president of Union Theological Seminary, and uh, Kathy Keller, who is the wife of Tim Keller, who right. is a minister here in town. Um, I am trying to get them both in here because Kathy Keller actually uh, went to th- seminary to be a, a minister and decided that, scripturally speaking, it was not good. It, the, the scriptures actually clearly say that she um, should not be a preacher. She married one, obviously, Tim Keller. And um, I had heard that, you know, they're very good friends, all of them. I had heard that over dinner one evening that she and um, Serene Jones um, had a little discussion about that. And so my feeling is like we're going to get them in here and we're going to talk about that particular verse because I've asked Kathy Keller about that verse about women in the church. So the fact that we're kind of, you know, using that today, I think, is an indication that it's a huge deal. And a lot of people just have not fine-tuned Right. Or not find rightly read the scriptures and what does it actually mean? So we're going to do an exegesis of that um, that that particular verse with the two women on right. both sides. Right. So two men, however, <laughs> we're not going to talk about right, that right. today. But I do think it's interesting that you say you know don't use that to sort of you know make a case for same sex marriage and relationships. I think the greater point. I'm not making a case for same sex on those grounds. I'm talking about the way we read the text. Okay. I'm talking about how glibly we can say, well, the Bible plainly says. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't. The Bible hears more than it says mm-hmm. because we interpret. When we're reading, we're interpreting. And I think one of the issues that's central to this, if you're going to you know, keep talking about Scripture, which I'm more than glad to, I love the book, it's how do we view the authority of the text? Okay. I, I think about... Uh, I, I hear First Timothy 2 saying, I don't allow a woman to teach, and I say, that's fine, Paul. I do. See, I don't see the Bible as a fixed propositional truth that is a constitutional end as much as it's an invitational beginning. It promotes the right conversations, and the Spirit, through the work of the church, continues to lead and guide us. Shane and I have been around the Pentecostal movement for years. That movement was not a part of the 19th century or 16th or 13th. It was a move that was born out of the beginning of the 20th century. Our forebears deeply believed that the Spirit moved in a profound and new way. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, um, if a woman wants to leave her husband, she can't, unless he chooses as an unbeliever to leave her. He continued by saying, I don't say this as a command. I don't have a word from Jesus on this. And I speak this by permission as one who's been counted worthy to give an opinion. And he concluded the chapter by saying, I think I have the mind of the Spirit. If we would be as humble with Paul's words Mm -hmm. as Paul is with Paul's words and take them as a beginning to a very important conversation, and for Paul, 20 years after Jesus, to say on the matter of divorce and remarriage that Jesus, I have no word from Jesus on this, because context has so greatly changed in 20 years. How much more has context changed in 2,000 years? But is it the context or is it, you know, the, the, the idea of truth? And one of the things that I, I hear, though, and I hear your point, um, Stan, is that if we're born, if because you know, I had a mother and a father, and I love my mother and my father, and I, I wonder, all the wonderful things I learned from both my mother and my father, and they had different things to give me. Um, and, you know, I have, I'm the youngest of five, the same gene pool, and it's a, it was a wonderful bucolic kind of upbringing in that way because, you know, I saw all the struggles that all of my brothers and sisters went through and my mother and father went through. And for me personally, I'd say, like, I would want to give that to a child to understand the context of male and female and get those kinds of things going. And I see how my brothers have learned to become good husbands and good fathers because they have the example of their of their of their father. And then, you know, my me and my sister have the example of my of my mother and the context and all of these things. And and I wonder, you know, the, the intention of a same-sex marriage takes that out of that context. Is that a good thing in, in, a, in a biblical sense? I'm watching dozens of same-sex couples raise their children in a community of faith surrounded by males and females, surrounded by intersex people, because there are 26 biological, genetic, physiologically determined 
variations on sexuality that are not exclusively binary. I'm watching children be influenced by parents and teachers, males and females, and uh, I was raised by a father and a mother. I'm a divorcee, and I have been in that bucolic home. I've been in that idyllic place. And I've also watched my children in a less-than-ideal situation have multiple parents, step-parents. And in all of that, there is a community of faith and a community of love. And uh, I, I think the love and the direction still gets through. Okay. Stan, I, I, Shane, you, why do you have S names? I, I'm totally <laughs> getting mixed up. Shane, I mean, your take, I mean, I think, just answer what, um, what Stan was talking about. Well, I think he's saying that the church can be supplemental or teachers can come alongside and help the kids be raised in a, in a healthy home environment. We just don't see that. Uh, psychological studies, you can look at statistics that kids from a, 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 a male and female, mother and father, uh, the child is raised in a much better setting. But now we know fatherless homes are, what, at 40 percent in our nation? Um, and my concern is I don't. Uh, we haven't raised the standard and missed it. We've lowered it and we hit it. So now we come in and say with gay marriage and, 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 and trying to validate things that are clearly outlined in Scripture as, as uh, not uh, right. And now we're, we're reaping the whirlwind. It's like the Titanic's been hit. Now what do we do? You know, it's mm-hmm. like you got to go back to the foundational principles of the Christian faith, back to God's Word. I mean, when was the last time uh, pastors were, were fasting and praying and seeking the heart of God for the old truth? Choose the old paths. He's not revealing some truth that will contradict what he's already set in motion. Unpack that a little bit more because I, I want to get Give you, me a bullet point. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, you could, one of the things that I see though well, happening in the church, though, you've got a lot of people who, you know, there's changing ideas about homosexuality, even among uh, the religious people. Well, like, white evangelicals and uh, Protestants are 35 percent, mainline Protestants 68 percent. Black Protestants, 44%, Catholics, 67%, and unaffiliated people, 85%. These are all saying that you know they support same-sex marriage. Right. But it goes back to what we said at the, uh, in the um, spirited debate is that, in my opinion, the culture has been changing the church. Uh, the church is looking to the culture for answers. I mean, look at New York, how many, how many those billboards, millions of dollars in advertising for 20 seconds. We know. So the culture is no longer being, being swayed by... Primarily the pulpit, 1620, the pilgrim, pilgrims coming over, and, and the pulpit used to set the tone of the nation. That was the truth. They would give people God's word. Now they're looking to Hollywood, media, the educational system for direction, and that's actually changing the mindset. What's the old adage? You tell a lie long enough, people will begin to believe it. So we believe that this, obviously those statistics are going to continue to change. The more it's being pushed, the more the pulpits are silent. I mean, we've got major major preachers in our nation that won't even talk about difficult issues. They don't want to talk about repentance. They don't want to talk about the blood of Christ. They don't want to talk about gay marriage. They want to just stay very neutral and build a big audience, but not break a heart and lead you, people to. You know, Australia is actually going through a referendum. They're, going to, they're having a referendum on um, same-sex marriage, and stories are now surfacing that the churches are actually uh, for traditional marriage. They're being vandalized. Um, you know, one woman said she lost her job because she supported it. You saw something similar to this in Proposition 8. And I know, um, you know, Stan, you say that, you know, it works both ways. But the legal um, world is going in favor of same-sex marriage. And it seems as though if you don't believe this, you are actually going to be att- – you're being attacked more. I don't know that you're being attacked as much as I think you're being left behind. Because I think culture, conscience, and the work of the Holy Spirit is leading us down this trail. Um, I, I'm not trying to get a bigger audience. My leadership council at the church is meeting tonight to discuss how much to reduce my salary. Because our congregation is one-fifth the size that it was when I started. And it's exactly what I knew would happen in the middle of the Bible Belt. This has cost me dearly, and it's cost the people who work with me dearly. Some of my pastor friends have lost their jobs. I was in Seattle this past weekend preaching for a friend who did inclusion two weeks after we did. They were running 5,500 with seven campuses. They now have one campus. There was 560 people there. Now, some would say that's exactly what we deserve. We would say that it's our calling, and we believe that it's come at a price, and the price is worth it. And the young lady that stood up in our church a few months ago, a transgendered young woman, and said that after one of her transitional surgeries, her Nazarene conservative evangelical mother told her, I wish you would have died because I would rather have a dead son than a living whatever you are. 
giving those people a place uh, comes at a price, and we are not being whisked away by glory and by the allure of money and fame. It's costing us dearly. Can I, you know, can I interject on that? Because I do apologize to stand on that one. That wasn't meant for him. I was addressing Bible-believing, so-called Bible-believing uh, preachers on television, massive radio audiences that are avoiding this hot-button issue. When the church is looking for answers, they're not wanting to bring it up. Uh, number one, number because they're afraid. Because they're yeah, they're afraid of everything Stan mentioned. But I, I, I do think that there is this feeling that if you don't um, believe in same-sex marriage, that you're a hate monger, and I think yeah, that's, that's wrong. I, I think that's it's right. Wrong. It's wrong, and I think that's the way the the, the the secular society is actually judging Christians today. If you're a good Christian, it means you support same-sex marriage. If you're a bad Christian, it means you don't, and you're a hate monger. And I think that's what it, that's the information. It's a, a caricature. It's a caricature. I mean, the reality is Shane knows my circumstance. I'm sitting here across the table from a for a from a with a guy who paid my way to New York for this debate. And he didn't do it because he thinks I'm a cuckold who's going to be an easy take. He's a kind and a loving Christian man. And this, this does deserve spirited debate. And uh, the, the straw manning of acting like everybody on that side, right. is, it's ridiculous, and it misses the point. Which is why I wanted you both in here to talk with each other because this is the kind of thing that is uh, destroying families. Uh, they're debating over it and they're getting angry and they're breaking up. And they're not talking to each other. This is a thing that's actually, you know, it's causing a fissure in our culture and in our, in our communities. And I figured if we can get the two of you in to talk about it and show how we can talk about it together, right. maybe the rest of the world can do it as well. Right. That's a that's a good point you made uh, too. Also, but I would like to just throw in two things quickly. Uh, the girl who whose mom said that to her, uh, we would welcome her as well. I mean, we've got we've got people tr- struggling with transgenderism. The person I just released that article on Christian Post. He struggles with same sex attraction. He helped me edit it. Uh, so there's a love, but I think we can have the love, but still point people back to the truth. So if I have a fourteen fourteen year old boy struggling with same sex attraction, suicidal, if I don't point him to the answer. He's going to be an 18-year-old boy struggling because the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit is not going to ever give him rest. It's a, it's a conviction you can never get rid of until you find wholeness in Christ. And I would say it's an external conviction imposed by a church burdening people with an undue take on Scripture. But again, that's the, that's the two poles, but, but even sincerely held. About five minutes ago, you made an interesting statement on the culture and the Holy Spirit are directing us. To me, the, the Holy Spirit is rarely in alignment with the culture. If the culture is going one direction, the Spirit of God is often going the other direction. And when you have men, say Pastor Jim Cimbola, we both know, or I meant, um, and godly men, men that love you, men that love God's truth, men that are humble, they are broken before the Lord, and they are saying, they are saying the same thing. Stan, Tony Kampala, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, please, Please look at the scriptures. And really good loving men and women are looking back at you guys saying, please, Shane, please, Jim, please, Tim, look at the scripture again. We're both asking one another to look at the same text. Neither side is without mind and without heart. So the question comes back to how does Shane end up where he is and how do I end up where I am? Well, this is the thing is that, you know, if you talk to apologetics, you know, people, they say, you know, people are not swayed by information. They're swayed by emotion. And I think that's why this issue of homosexuality becomes such a huge issue because people don't enter homosexuality because they had an intellectual argument over it. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. These are the things that draw you into it. I am not attracted to my husband because... You know, I, I did a, a, a you know, a cost-based analysis and said, oh, I should be attracted mm-hmm. to you. I, you know, you, there's an emotion there. That's so, cool. But it's not always but, – but feelings are not based on truth. Feelings are based on something else. Sometimes they align with truth. Sometimes they don't. And that's why there must be an objective source outside to say what this is. And for Christians, it's supposed to be um, God's plan. Now, this is where we're stuck because your take – Shane is that the Bible's clear on this issue, and, well, and that it says it says it, you know he does you know homosexuality is a sin, and and Stan you're clear on the issue you're saying it is not, and this is I think we're obviously not going to to solve no, this no. 
in an hour. But think about this for one minute. Not only is the Bible clear on it, I would argue that the Bible never even paints it in a positive light. In this issue of love and feelings, if you go to YouTube and you put in God's scandalous love by Shane Eidelman, I actually spoke at a memorial service for a gay prostitute. I drove three hours, met him in North Hollywood. He was suicidal, pointed him back to Christ, repented, gave his life to the Lord, was was starting, and then passed away a month later. He's in his 30s, male prostitute, $800 a night he's making. And I was able to speak at his memorial service. So what would I say? I would speak the truth in love, that God loves you, but this is not right. I mean, not only is crystal the, the scripture clear, there is no, you can't even give one scriptural reference where it paints homosexuality or gay marriage in a positive light. There's zero, there's I, nothing. I think that's a, an interesting question, and, you, and I think that's a question to hold up to you, Stan. Like, if you just take out even the verses that refer to homosexuality directly or even indirectly, where in the Bible does it hold up the union of two men and two women equal to a man and a woman? It doesn't. That did not enter into human consciousness at that time. It was not an issue any more than the sun being the center of the solar system was an issue or our constructs of capitalism or a non-slave-based market. Uh, There were things that they simply had not developed the consciousness to even question. I don't think enlightenment or spiritual growth is always about coming up with better answers. I think it's the development of better questions. And I think when we just glibly keep, you know, keep, keep uh, just prattling on the same answers over and over and over, we may be missing some really important mm-hmm. questions. If, you, if somebody in your church said, I am struggling with same-sex attraction, but I don't want them. I want to have opposite-sex attraction. I want to be heterosexual. I believe that's my true calling. What would you say? Yeah, I would disagree with that. If the um, person himself came to you and said... I don't I think my true calling is that I am a heterosexual but I have these same sex attractions and I don't want them what do I what do you what would you say to that Number person? 1 if a person came to me and they had angst about same sex attraction mm-hmm. I I I I'm I'm bothered by the phrase struggling with same sex attraction mm-hmm. I don't struggle with opposite sex attraction it is the natural way that I am bent now mm-hmm. I might struggle to keep it in check but I'm not struggling to not be. Mm-hmm. I would want to know why that person does not want to yield to their natural adult-to-adult attraction. And I probably, Lauren, would very quickly point them to a therapist because I'm a pastor, mm-hmm. and I would allow them to work that out there. But if if I surmised that one of the reasons they were trying not to be same-sex attracted was because of religious inclination— Yeah, but they're in your church. They're in my church. They're already in your church. They've been they've been affirmed in that area, but they said, you know, I just don't think this is me. What would you do? I would I had three same sex couples leave our church after we went inclusive because they wanted me to continue telling them that their <laughs> life was a sin. They were living it. But they at least wanted me to tell them not to live it. But see, Stan, that would be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That would be con- God convicting them because if a li- somebody comes in, Shane, I'm struggling with lying. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with being uh, prideful and covetous. It's that. It's that. I don't believe nature. every. Convi- I don't believe every inclination that something is wrong is true. I grew up in a movement where women couldn't cut their hair. I couldn't have a television. I couldn't play little league sports because it was a worldly amusement. I felt str- tremendous guilt if my hair touched my collar. Yeah, but those you things can aren't. Have, those things aren't really. I, you know, those things can't they be were compared. To me. They, were, they were to me. Okay, but and in our religious setting, in our religious setting, they were called sin, and we were told no sin was different than it, any other. It can not send even, you to hell. There's no scripture that says you they can't play basketball. They, they didn't read the. They didn't read the First scripture. Corinthians 11 said that a woman shouldn't cut her hair. I'm if talking she does. about the baseball. Well, let's go back to here. Let's don't miss the point. I think, too, because, Dan, you made up a good point just now about your upbringing and and other Tony Kampala and all these other people. It's almost like they they get a bad taste of legalistic, rigid Christianity, and then they run to the polar opposite. You think that's what I've done? It it sounds like it, just listening to you. That's not what I've done. You mentioned something uh, that not entered into the human consciousness until now, something like that, that, that now it's okay because the Spirit's moving. But how do you gauge the Spirit, then, the Spirit moving, if you don't have a gauge of truth by which to measure something as good the or The question evil? is always, how do we determine constitutionally objective truth? 
And our answer has always been on the Protestant side, sola scriptura, or at least prima scriptura. The primary benchmark is the scripture. And yet what you and I are showing today, and Tony Campolo and Jim Simbler are showing, is that good minds and good hearts look at the same text with sincerity, trying their best to take care of those people who come to us with those important questions. Mm -hmm. But you were saying that basically, I mean, this is, I think this is the question. I think it's very interesting that you said your three same-sex couples uh, couples left your church because they wanted to be told that. Um, And I kind of already know the answer to you. I mean, if you, if you... uh, if that happened in your church, Shane, I mean, you would obviously, you know. Well, it does. It's. It, a, it, I mean, we talk to kids who are struggling with transgenderism, uh, opiates, heroin. I've bar- I had to do two memorial services a few years ago for heroin, op- uh, heroin overdoses, and those teens. That's why the, the, the when they say gay uh, teens are suicidal, I, I see all teens as suicidal if they don't have the hope, whether they're alcoholic, yeah. whether opiates, whatever, whatever it is. And interesting, you know, with with Stan and Tony Capola, me and Jim Cimbala. Uh, divided, we have to remember something very important. The Holy Spirit is never divided. Mm-hmm. Never. So one view is God's view. There's not a gray area. There's so we've got to figure ground. out if it's your side or my side. But, well, it's I not, think but I wouldn't say I've... it's my side. I'd say what the scripture to me is, is crystal clear. In the spirit, it is to me too. But the I'm... spirit won't move us in a different direction. I agree. That's other than the I'm, truth. I'm going to end this <laughs> conversation with something Dr. John Rankin said, which I think is very important to remember in, as we move forward in discussing this, because I think we're going to start t- discussing this more, and I think mm-hmm. we need to be discussing this face-to-face. But he, he said, um, don't sacrifice the relationship for winning the argument. And I think that's very, very important, is that we have to stay the relationship, we have to keep in relationship um, and not part, because nothing mm-hmm. will get resolved if we simply turn our backs on each other and saying, well, I'm just going to preach my version and I'm going to preach my mm-hmm. version. And those people over there are demons and they're hate mongers and this, and these people are, you know, like, you know, they, they just don't know the truth. And they, I, we can't do mm-hmm. that because Jesus made one church. And, you know, we already went through it with the Protestant Reformation, you know, and the, and the big schism of 1054 and the Protestant Reformation in the, in the 1600s. And now, you know, you know, John Paul II felt that the, the third millennium of Christianity was going to be the one of unity that we're going to bring back. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have a, a part to play, you know, to bring to make that unity happen. And but this is the issue where you, we, this is one of these things where we, we're not going to be able to agree to disagree. Right, and right. I think we just need to keep talking about do it. Do we get a closing statement? Yes, you do. I want your closing statement. So, um, Pastor, Pastor Stan, why don't you start? Well, I think this issue of the broadening conscious has been with us from the beginning. In uh, the early church, there was a doctrine of exclusion, and it was directed toward 99% of the earth's population. The earliest Christian church, full of the Holy Spirit, believed that Gentile people had to convert to Judaism before they even had access to the gospel. And when God sought to correct that in Acts 10 with the apostle Peter, Peter argued his point on the grounds of his biblical interpretation. And when the Gentiles were included... And Peter went back and told the apostles in Jerusalem, including the brother of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles told Peter, you shouldn't even have eaten with those people. But five chapters later at the conference, when they were discussing the issue, James reversed, defended the inclusion, and quoted Amos, the ninth chapter. Amos 9 didn't change. We are an incarnational people. And you brought up emotion. We are an incarnational people. We believe that this is not just about disembodied concepts, but it's about God in flesh. And over and again in the history of the church, suffering people have given us experiences that have caused us not to jettison the text, but to say, my God, did we read that right? And we have been driven back to the text just like they were in the beginning. And we have found out, oh, my God, we read it wrong. I believe this is one of those issues. Am I right? I don't know. I'm not certain. Time will tell. It always does. Okay. Pastor, Pastor Shane? Mine's pretty short. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I Mine think, was too. Yeah, good, good job. Uh, what, what Stan said there uh, is important, but, you know, it, it keeps, you know, getting thrown in that reinterpreting Scripture, we're looking at the same thing. I mean, we're not talking about head coverings or uh, hair down to here, women in leadership or teaching. If I can talk bluntly, we're talking about an issue that Paul says 
this type of lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a pretty big deal because you're validating something that will actually send people to hell. And A.W. Tozer said um, uh, that when we become so tolerant, so tolerant that we lead people into mental fog or spiritual darkness, we are not acting like Christians, we're acting like cowards. So my final thought is we're, we're so worried about offending others, and I don't want to offend people at all. But if we ever stopped to think for one minute that we might be offending God, that's my that's my whole concern with it. This is a big issue. Uh, okay. This is not just head coverings or reinterpreting. This is this is a big deal that we're instead of giving people hope, we're actually validating their lifestyle that's not uh, not good, and God doesn't uh, look. Uh, he loves them, but that sin is something they'll need to repent from. I'm going to ask um, both of you to kind of give your website, and if people want to contact you, um, how do they get in contact with you, Pastor Stan? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is Grace Point with an E on the end, uh, dot T-N, and then www.gracepoint.net. Okay, and Pastor Shane, how they can get hold of you? Uh, Westsidechristianfellowship.org. It's pretty easy. Westsidechristianfellowship.org. It's on Facebook and Twitter and uh also the web, the okay. World Wide Web. And I would ask people, if you're going to contact either pastor... No hate mail. No hate mail. They, they've had enough, both of them, and ask a question, um, get some theological explanation, anything that helps put the discussion forward. But please, no hate, no you know vitriol, just let's move forward in truth it and It doesn't love. help your point. Stan made it good. We were talking beforehand. When people come out and just curse and yell and whatever. It, it doesn't help their point whatsoever. No. So Absolutely. honest dialogue. All right. I want to thank you so much, Pastor Shane Eidelman and Pastor Stan um, Mitchell. And I want to thank you very much for being on a spirited debate. And I thank hope you, we can Lauren. get it thank back you. sometimes. It'd be, be great. I love having you here. I love this discussion. And I love this. Thank you so much for listening Absolutely. to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. And thanks for listening.